Let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Would you join me in a word of prayer as we prepare our hearts to study God's Word together this morning? Father, this is Your Word. You have given it to us. You have seen fit for it to persevere through centuries so that we can hold it in our laps and see it on our electronic devices this morning. Father, I pray that You would use Your Word to challenge us and to change us. pray that You would use Your Word to glorify Your name. We pray this in Your name. Amen. As we're in 1 Peter 2, I want to ask a question. How do you think of yourself? Or with whom or what do you identify yourself with? Maybe it's family. I'm a McDermott. I'm a Kelius. I'm a Harris. I'm a Frew. Is it your family roots? Irish. German. Italian. Spanish. Is it your nationality? I'm an American. I'm a Brazilian. I'm a Bolivian. I'm a whatever nationality. Is it a political affiliation? Is it a religious affiliation? Is it a sports affiliation? I'm a Philly sports fanatic, or I root for any team in Philly, or or any particular city, or any particular player, are they the things that you most naturally think of yourself and associate yourself with? There are many things that we can use to associate and label ourselves with, but I doubt that when you think of yourself I highly doubt you think of yourself as a stone. We kind of tend to think of ourselves as a stone kind of the same way we tend to think of ourselves as a sheep, right? The Bible does compare us to sheep, but we don't really tend to think of ourselves as sheep. But yet, Peter writes in his letter in 1 Peter... He writes to the elect pilgrims in the regions that we have seen in chapter 1, and he describes them as stones. And not just stones, but living stones. So the question has to be asked, why stones? In what way are we like stones? And why does Peter use stones? stones to describe those who are followers of Christ. Recall that as we have been working our way through 1 Peter, that we have seen Peter is writing to those who are facing imminent and even current persecution and affliction because of their allegiance to Christ. He refers to them as pilgrims in the very beginning of the letter in uh, verse One, he says, to the pilgrims of the dispersion. These pilgrims or sojourners, he is seeking to point them, he is trying to help comfort them that in Christ, 
they have all they need to stand steadfast through persecution. And not just that, but that Christ is worth standing steadfast for. We've seen in recent weeks how these pilgrims have been given an incorruptible inheritance and a living hope in Christ. And one that has been promised throughout the Old Testament and carried out through the Holy Spirit's work as He is transforming lives in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. We, our last time together, we saw some implications of this incredible hope in Christ in the last part of chapter 1 and as we uh, briefly touched into chapter 2. The sojourners in these churches were called to be holy in their conduct. That is, to live in the fear of God, the impartial judge, and desire the Word. Because it helps them grow. In the text that we're going to look at this morning, which Mr. Arnold read for us this morning, we see Peter finishing his first major section of the letter and setting the tone for where he's going to go in the rest of the letter of 1 Peter. In the first three verses of chapter 2, however, as we saw last time, there is an individual emphasis on living in community. At the, at the outset of chapter 2, Peter commands his audience to lay aside some things. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, evil speaking. And to replace that with desiring the pure milk of the Word. What we're going to see in verses 4-12 through is a shift from an individual emphasis on living together as a body of Christ to how the church as a whole is to function and relate to each other. As we look at the text this morning, we are going to see that Peter is again informed by the Old Testament. And he helps use the Old Testament to show us who Christ is and who we are now that we are in Christ. The title of the message this morning is Chosen Stones Rejected by Men Special to God. And there are three things in this passage that we see that are special or set apart for God's total use. Notice with me, if you would, this morning, the first of them, a chosen house. A chosen house. And we see this in 1 Peter 2, verses 4-8. through Peter says this, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. So as we consider verses 4 through 8, verses 4 through 8 really break down into three different segments, if you will. So if we look at verses 4 through 5, verses 4 through 5 breaks down to basically this. 
This is the basic structure of verses 4-5. through As you are coming to Him, you are being built up into a spiritual, into a spiritual house. This results in you becoming a holy priesthood capable of offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. That's, that's the nuts and bolts of what Peter is communicating in verses 4 and 5. But there are all of these phrases that flush out a deeper, more important thing that Peter's trying to get across here. So notice as we look at verse 4, Peter writes, coming to him. Who is, who is the him? The him refers to the Lord. If you look back at the previous verses in verses 1 through 3, specifically in verse 3, we see the reference, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, immediately followed by coming to him. This is a reference to God, that the Lord is gracious. It is the same Lord that, that the, Peter's audience has tasted as being good. This is a direct reference to Jesus. And it is not a reference to Peter. I mean, take, keep in mind who is writing this. This is the Apostle Peter. This is the person who in Matthew sixteen eighteen, Jesus said, Peter, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. One of the things that, that is odd to me about Peter writing this is Peter doesn't identify himself as a stone or a rock. It's Jesus who is the living stone. And as we read through the text, we find that He is not just the living stone, He is the chief cornerstone. The emphasis is on Jesus. So we are coming to him in verse 4 as to a living stone. And notice that Peter's audience in verse 5 is referred to as living stones. What are we to make of living stones? I mean, there are all of us know what stones are, right? I mean, whether you have them in your driveway, whether you throw them in a lake, whatever you do with stones, you, you know what a stone is. A living stone? I mean, kids, imagine for me a minute, you go to a lake or, or a river or a creek and you pick up a stone and you go to throw it in the creek and it says, stop, don't throw me. Living stones? Go back with me to 1 Peter 1 and we will see in verse 3 some significance with why we and why Jesus Christ is called a living stone. 1 Peter 1, verse 3, the text says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Why is Jesus a living stone? Because He is sure not a dead stone. And if we trust in Christ for salvation, when we trust in Christ for salvation, we are no longer dead stones. We are 
begotten again to a living hope inside a living Savior, Jesus Christ. So therefore, Peter in chapter 2 can call Jesus a living stone and say that we come to Him, that we are inside of Him as living stones. As heirs of Jesus Christ, we share in His living stoneness. Peter describes Jesus in two additional phrases in verse 4. We come to Him as a living stone. And notice what comes next. This is kind of counterintuitive. This living stone has been rejected indeed by men. If He's a living stone, why would men reject Him? John 1 verse 11 says that He came to His own and His own received Him not. They gave Him the stiff arm. They said, no thank you. He has been rejected indeed by men. But, the text goes on, chosen by God and precious. Earlier in 1 Peter 1.19, Peter writes this, but you have been bought with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. To God, Jesus Christ has been set apart and is not just precious in the sense of like cute or quaint, but precious in the sense that He deserves honor. He is worthy of highest honor. we see in verse 4 a a subtle reference to a story that Jesus told in Matthew 7.24. He describes two houses. One that was built on the rock and one that was built on sand. And what happens? The winds come and the house on the rock stands firm. It holds up. The house on the sand falls to pieces. And what is that a reference to? That is a reference to Jesus Christ, the living stone. What are you building your life on? One building that we see in this text is built according to men. The other building is built according to God. One rejects. The other specifically chooses Jesus. From men's perspective, Jesus is a stone that you should skip over. From God's perspective, there's no other way He wants to start His spiritual building than with Jesus. Because you can't get a better stone. Jesus' rejection by men is a thing the believers in these churches would have in common with Him. They're getting ready to face some of this rejection. They're getting ready to identify with Him in being rejected by men. And so, as Peter's writing this, this is a comfort to those believers. Hey, we are identifying with exactly what Christ went through. Just as He was rejected by men, we are preparing and facing rejection by men. Peter then expands on those who are being built up. The the other living stones in verse 5. And notice what is happening here. Notice that as we come to verse 5, you also as living stones are being built up. 
we as living stones in Christ are not building ourselves up. We are being built up. That is a passive verb. That is God doing the building, not us doing the building. God is building His church. They are being built up into a temple. A spiritual house. They are being built up in becoming a holy priesthood. And what does that result in? That results in them offering sacrifices acceptable to God. Do you pick up on some of the Old Testament allusions that are taking place here? I mean, where do we find the spiritual house for God? We find that in the tabernacle and the temple that are referenced in the Old Testament, don't we? That God gives explicit instructions for His people to construct for Him a spiritual house. Now, after Jesus Christ, we find that we, the church, are becoming that spiritual house. A holy priesthood. That set of people who are pulled aside and set apart to serve God with their entire life. The Levites. We become a holy priesthood. And then notice we offer up, the result of this is that we are able to offer up spiritual sacrifices. And these are not just willy-nilly spiritual sacrifices. These are spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God. That as the Levite would go into the Holy of Holies and offer a sacrifice for the sins of the nation, that he would come out and that that would be accepted by God. We now as the church of Jesus Christ who are in Christ as living stones we are now able to participate in that. All of this, though, hinges on the last part of verse 5. We're able to become a spiritual house. We're able to become a holy priesthood. We're able to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. All of this is because of Jesus Christ. Were it not for Him, there would be no living stones or house. Why? Well, we see in verses 6-8 through that Peter is going to expand on the significance of Jesus being a living stone. So, let's turn our attention to verse 6. Therefore, it is also contained in the Scripture. And Peter here is going to start with a rapid fire of three Old Testament quotations. In verse 6, he quotes from Isaiah 28.16. And here we see in verse 6 that Jesus is not just a stone. That, he, that we are not uh, one of stones among whom Jesus is a peer. But God has laid in Zion a chief cornerstone. And we can link those together because notice in verse 6 the similarity of the language that describes the living stone and the chief cornerstone. In verse 4, the living stone is chosen by God and precious. In verse 6, the chief cornerstone is elect. That's chosen by God. Precious. So we link those together. That that God, that Peter, as he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 
Isaiah 28.16 comes to his mind as a hook that his audience would be able to go back and reference and see how Jesus Christ had been prophesied in the Old Testament to be this. Again, we see that Jesus was chosen by God and precious. And those who believe in Christ, as Peter's writing to these believers getting preparing for persecution, they risk it all for His sake. And we find out that they will not be put to shame. Again, Peter, as he's writing to his audience, is encouraging them that, that by them risking it for Jesus Christ, by them identifying in His rejection and suffering that God is not going to pull the rug out from under them. That He's not going to say, ha, tricked ya. They will not be put to shame. We see in verses 4-8 through this theme of God choosing or setting aside Jesus Christ. We saw it in verse 4. We see it in verse 6. We also see it in verses 7-8. and In verses 7-8, and Peter kind of shifts his focus a little bit because he says in verse 7, Therefore to you who believe He is precious, but to those who are disobedient... And then he cites two Old Testament texts that point to those who are not living stones. To those who have not obeyed. But we see that for those who are saved, that we are not put to shame, and that is an honor. Now, if you are reading out of the New King James, you have heard, you know, therefore to you who believe, He is precious. But if you're reading out of another translation, um, you may have a little bit of a different reading in verse 7. And why is that? There is a translation uh, difference between what we see reflected in the New King James that we are reading out of this morning and other translations. In other translations, they are taking it literally to be because He is precious. Since He is precious. You love Him. You honor Him. In other words, what we could take for this is that Rather than to us who believe He is precious, He's precious on His own accord. It's not up to our assent that God is precious that makes Him precious. He is honorable because He has been set apart for God. Additionally, those who are not put to shame share in that honor. We await the final day of Jesus Christ on which we will be like Him and we will be, we receive our glorified new bodies. Not so for those who are disobedient. And that's what Peter turns his attention towards in verse 7. But to those who are disobedient... And notice the contrast here as Peter introduces disobedience with what he has emphasized earlier. Look with me back in chapter 1. Look in verse 2. He describes these believers, their salvation, in 1 Peter 1-2, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter 1-14, 1 
He picks up on this again when he says, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. We also see this theme of obedience in verse 22 of chapter 1. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit. So, against the obedience that those who are living stones in Christ have exhibited, those who are disobedient face a different situation. To those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. That is a reference to Psalm 118.22. And then he moves on to another quotation, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, a reference to Isaiah 8.14. That first quotation that we see at the beginning of verse, or at the end of verse 7, is one that Peter uses several times. He picks up on the rejection of Jesus again. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. If we turn back to Acts chapter 4, we would see that this was a text that Peter used in one of his very first sermons. This exact text. When he is preaching to the Jewish people and letting them know that they missed the boat. They rejected Jesus Christ. But in spite of that, He has become the chief cornerstone. At the beginning of verse 8, we have this final quotation that those who disbelieve stumble over the stone. That is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. We've identified that the stone is Jesus Christ. So He is a stumbling block to them. He is something that causes them to trip up. He is something that is an offense to them. And then we come across this perplexing phrase, that they stumble. Why? Being disobedient to the Word. That's opposite from what the believers in these churches have been. They have been obedient to the Word. They are disobedient to the Word to which they also were appointed. To which they also were appointed. For for those who are saved, we are not put to shame. And that is an honor. But for those who reject the chief cornerstone, They stumble, and they stumble because they are disobedient to the Word, and they were appointed to be disobedient to that Word. People who stumble and disobey are responsible for their refusal to trust in Christ. And yet God, as we see in this verse, has appointed, without Himself being morally responsible for the sin of those who unbelieve, He appoints them that they will both disobey and stumble. God has appointed both the chief cornerstone and those who will stumble. What are we to make of that? Because God is appointing both blessing in appointing Jesus Christ and calamity in causing some to stumble? Isaiah 45.7 speaks to this. Where God says... Do not I make peace and create calamity? I, the Lord, do all of these things. 
we see this, this tension that this statement of God's total sovereignty climaxes in that He appointed the execution of Jesus. He was the one who ordained Christ's death on the cross. So put yourself in the shoes of Peter's original audience in these churches that this letter would have originally been circulated to. They have been comforted by the fact that that they, like Christ Jesus, are preparing to be rejected. That they will not be put to shame. But the statement of God's total sovereignty is also a comfort to them. This statement is a comfort to those suffering for the sake of Christ. That that they have not somehow escaped from His orb of control, but that they are still right in the palm of His hand, right where He wants them, and that He is with them. And even as they go through all of this, and even as, as those people reject the message of the Gospel... That God is still with them and working in them. So we see this chosen house in verses 4-8. through But in verses 9-10, and we see secondly, a chosen people. A chosen house. Secondly, a chosen people. In verses 9-10. and Peter writes, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. One of the things that we're struck that, that should strike us as we come to verses 9 and 10 is Peter starts using plural pronouns. A fancy way of saying uh, you in the plural would be all y'all. I'm I'm qualified to say that because my wife is from North Carolina, and so I can use that uh, terminology validly through extension. So notice that in verses 9 and 10, how that reads, but all y'all are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood a holy nation, His own special people, that all y'all may proclaim the praises of Him who called all of you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Who once were not a people. That's plural, right? It doesn't say who once were not a person, but a people who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So in verse 9, Peter elaborates on what is true about those who were not disobedient. Those, were who, those who are obedient children. He uses four phrases in verse 9. And each one of these has heavy ties and allusions to the Old Testament. The first phrase that we come across in verse 9 is that you are a chosen generation. This echoes words that Isaiah writes in Isaiah 43, 20 and 21, in which God refers to Israel as my people, my chosen. The word for generation that we see here, a chosen generation, denotes people who are descended from a common lineage. In other words, it's not just like, well, I'm a millennial, so I'm a chosen generation. It's not a generation like we think of a generation. It is those who share in a common lineage. Those who have the same things true about them. 
Peter has just established in verses 4 through 8 what those who are a part of God's church have in common with each other. He's established that common lineage. And so, therefore, he can refer to the church as a chosen generation. The next three terms echo the words that we read in Exodus 19, 5 and 6, where we read, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. We see these three phrases echoed in Exodus 19. But there is this idea of a royal priesthood. Well, in a royal priesthood, there is a mixing of two distinct roles. There's a royal role and a religious role. And in Christ, we as the church are able to serve as priests while we are royal priests since we serve in the kingdom of God. We are in God's kingdom. And so therefore, as priests, we are a royal priesthood. This may be a familiar theme to some of you like myself who come from Baptistic backgrounds because one of the big emphases is the priesthood of the believer. But if we understand the theme rightly, this emphasizes the obedience and the holiness that was required for priests back in the Old Testament. So, to the believers in the churches, Peter is encouraging them to embrace obedience to Christ and holiness in their conduct because in Christ, they are priests. They're priests in His kingdom. So they are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Again, Peter is almost piling these terms on to help us understand that we are distinct and set apart to the Lord. We are to be holy to the Lord just as the nation of Israel, as they were called a holy nation, were set apart to be God's people. The last phrase, he characterizes us as His own special people. We are set apart to be a people dedicated to God who are His special group or His special set of people. That's the church. We are His own special people. We all know what the idea of special means. Whether it's a special place setting that you have that you put out on someone's birthday or special occasion, or whether it's a whole set of place settings that you put out for special family meals. Whether it's a noteworthy thing that you have built that holds value. Or whether it's something like a guitar from a famous person. If you go up to the Martin Guitar Factory up in Nazareth, they have a museum with tons of cool cool guitars on display. And one of them is a guitar that was played by Johnny Cash. And they will let anybody take that guitar and play it. 
Some of you are raising your eyebrows because you're like, really? Like, what would happen if my five or six-year-old got a hold of that guitar? No, it's locked away. It, It is on display, but it is in this cabinet because it is special. And what Peter is conveying to us here is that we are God's special people. That that there is something about us because what He has done for us in Christ Jesus that makes us special to Him. Let that sink in for a minute. That in Christ Jesus, the church at Limerick Chapel is considered God's own special people. These three terms point to a reality. That the church of Jesus is a people now set apart for the Lord. And they, are, they enjoy His special presence and favor. But as we come to the last part of verse 9, we see the purpose of all of this. What is the purpose of us being a chosen generation and a royal priesthood and a holy nation and His own special people? It is so that we would be, through the church, able to proclaim together and declare the mighty acts of God. Specifically, that we are invited to proclaim the One who called us, us assembled together, all of us, out of darkness into His marvelous light. It's amazing what God has done in each of us. Yes. But think of us together as a whole, how God has worked. What a chorus of praise it is for each of us together as we gather as a church, as living stones, to declare how He made us a people set apart to Him. As we come to verse 10, we come across this beautiful summary of what it means practically for the church to be the four things in verse 9. If they are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, they are His obedient children, how do we describe them now? There are two transfers that we see in verse 10. Who once were not a people. We didn't have any common lineage. And that's true of each of us. We may have some things in common, but for all of us to have something in common before Christ? But now, you are the people of God who had not obtained mercy. We had no claim on God's mercy. We had no escape for our sins and iniquities and transgressions. But now, we have obtained mercy. We were not a group with a common lineage. We were once without mercy and hope, but God... He made us a people. He gave us mercy. Friend, if Christ is not your sole source of salvation, you have nothing to declare or offer to God. 
It is only through Jesus Christ, as we saw in verse 5, that you are able to bring acceptable offerings and sacrifices to God. Without faith in Christ, it is impossible to please Him. Today, you could be saved from your sin and have a relationship with God. You could, you could become one of those living stones that is being built up into a spiritual house. You could, you could be transferred from having no common lineage, no mercy, and disobedient to becoming a child of God who will not be put to shame. Who now has a common lineage with others who have been saved by that same grace and love of Christ. And you can obtain mercy today. If you are interested in learning more about that salvation, let me encourage you after the service to come talk to myself or to Pastor Harris. We would love the opportunity to share with you how you could be transferred from not having obtained mercy to obtaining mercy. To be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God. So as we have considered a chosen house and a chosen people, finally and briefly, let's consider a chosen purpose. A chosen purpose. And this brings us to verses 11 and 12. Verses 11 and 12 serve as an extension of what Peter has just said in verse 9. That we were set apart by Christ to proclaim His praises as a holy nation and God's special people. So, what does that look like for Peter's audience? Verses 11 and 12 are the beginning of spelling that out. Notice in verse 11 and into verse 12 that Peter returns to the use of sojourner and pilgrim language. He brings that back up again. Why? Because as those who are a part of a different nation, now a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a special people, as those who are a part of that, we are dedicated now to a special purpose that is being holy priests, It is only natural that those living on this earth would view themselves as sojourners and pilgrims. We no longer have a prominent common lineage with those who do not know Christ. We we share things in common, absolutely. Whether it's street location, whether it's common things that we love to do together with them or workplaces that we share with them, but that is now no longer our primary common lineage. So we start to begin to view ourselves naturally as sojourners and pilgrims. This is not our homeland. We are looking for a country that is a heavenly where God is not ashamed to be called, where we are not ashamed to call God our God. To these sojourners and pilgrims, Peter gives two commands in verse 11 and in verse 12. He commands them to abstain from from fleshly lusts and to have their conduct honorable. Abstaining from fleshly lusts refers to those desires that are natural in 
ourselves as we live the human life. These desires don't just occasionally rear their ugly heads, but rather they war against the soul, Peter says here. Abstaining from them means that we remove ourselves from or don't be a part of those fleshly lusts. In other words, to use Paul's language, we are putting to death what is earthly in us. Peter encourages his audience to have their conduct honorable among the Gentiles as well. You remember back in chapter 1 where Peter commanded the same audience to be holy in all of their conduct? He's just unpacked why, and he is re-emphasizing that again. To have their conduct honorable among the Gentiles. And together, these two commands reinforce what we saw in chapter 1, verses 13-16. to Peter unpacks why we ought to abstain and to have our conduct honorable in the last half of verse 12. In verse 12 we read that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. The purpose of Peter's admonition here is so that when those who don't know Christ speak of the believers in the churches, they may observe or see the conduct and give glory to God. Do you remember the words of Jesus to His disciples in Matthew 5.16 when He said that you are the light of the world? A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. And we are to let our light so shine so that they may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. This command to have your conduct honorable among the Gentiles is an outworking of 1 Corinthians 10.31 that whether we eat or we drink or whatever we do, that we would do for the glory of God. Not just in, in us giving glory to God, but that as others see us, as they observe us, as they study us, what are they doing? They're glorifying God. One of the Interesting things about verse 12 is how it ends. It ends with the fact that the Gentiles will give glory to God in or on the day of visitation. What in the world is the day of visitation? Is that that fateful day that we all dread where we hear the... and you go to open the door and that's the day of visitation and you're like, oh my goodness, I'm, what's going on here? This day of visitation could refer to several things. It could refer to the judgment and return of Christ. It could also refer to the visitation of Christ in the day of salvation. And in light of the context, I see the latter view to be compelling as we look at what verse 12 means. That that these Gentiles as they observe your good works, may glorify God in the day of visitation. In other words, on the day when they trust Christ as Savior. So, through your example, church, as you are conducting yourselves as sojourners and pilgrims, there's going to be fellow Gentiles who are going to be outside saying, wow, that's really different. Why in the world would they do something like that? And they're going to get curious and they're going to wonder. And they will then glorify God 
on the day of visitation as they accept Christ as Savior. I, I see this as compelling because if you look at 1 Peter 3, verse 2, we see a similar uh, analogy here. There is similar language in 1 Peter 3, verse 2. In verse 1, uh, there is instruction being given to women in the churches who have unsaved husbands. And he, Peter then says in verse 2 that... And sorry, at the end of verse 1, that they may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe, there's that same word, see, study, your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. What is it that is winning them? It's the conduct. And so I see a, a connection here to what Peter is getting ready to say. That as he's segueing from chapter 2 into chapter 3, that he's laying out the framework of what he's going to pick up on again in chapter 3. But this day of visitation is referring to the day when God will visit in a saving way some of those Gentiles who see your conduct, church, and say, wow. And they're giving glory to God in the day of visitation. In a similar way, this verse emphasizes the importance of our lifestyle among those who are in darkness. They have not come from darkness into the marvelous light of the Gospel yet. So our adherence to this verse's admonition as a church can result in some giving glory to God in the day of their salvation. And that is what Peter wants his church, these churches that he is writing to, And us, that is what He wants us to be about. So, how do we take this and live this out? I mean, we we are not necessarily facing imminent persecution. We are not necessarily facing uh, stonings or jailings necessarily. How do we take the truth that we see in these verses and integrate the truth of these verses into our life. Well, as we consider what Peter teaches in our text, how would his audience have received this? He's writing to these churches. What is he intending for them to take away from it? The life of Christ functioned as a pattern for these suffering Christians. They too were despised by many, but they were chosen and honored in God's sight. They were destined for vindication after suffering. And so this teaching would encourage them to persevere. Let this passage encourage you to endure affliction and persecution for the sake of Christ. While it may not be imminent, it is prominent in our day. Let this passage encourage you. May it give you grit to stand for Christ. To be willing to suffer affliction. To not get that promotion that maybe you really wanted. To not get the certain inroad that you were hoping. To maybe not network as fully as you would have been able to. To stand for the cause of Christ. Are you in Christ this morning? Has He saved you. Come to Him this morning. His invitation is open. He calls all to repent of their sin and trust in Him. How often do you view yourself as a living stone, brother and sister in Christ? How often do you view yourself as part of a spiritual house? As part of a spiritual 
priesthood, as a corporate whole. We tend to oftentimes have an individualistic view of what it means to to be a Christian. What this passage teaches us is that individualism doesn't work with Christianity. Peter is not writing to to little single-cell Christians. He is writing to this spiritual building. We are called to be dedicated and all in with this spiritual building. With Christ's church. The church is the focal point of God's plan. Therefore, it should be our focal point in our life. It is what the church is what Christ died for. It is who He has married Himself to. And now it is our responsibility to have that as our focal point in life as well. So how do you structure your life so that the church can be the focal point of your life? What takes priority on the calendar? What tends to push the church out of being the focal point? There are numbers of different things that could be listed here. Ways that we can supplant the church as being the focal point. Family is one of those things. Our career can be one of those things. Just overall busyness. We can unintentionally or intentionally supplant the church from being in its prominent place. But in this text, we see the importance of the church as a corporate whole. Have you ever considered the fact that we as the church at Limerick Chapel, are God's own special people. Not each of us individually necessarily, but all of us together. How should that affect how we treat each other? I'm reminded of the words of Acts 20.28 that when Paul is gathering the elders of the church at Ephesus and he's speaking to them, he encourages them to treat the church well because it is the church that Jesus paid for with His own blood. How can you become more active in the life of the church? How, How can you practically and every day put the church at the focal point of your life. You can work at discipling others and you can work at showing hospitality towards others. You can read Scripture with others in the church. You can encourage them through phone calls. You can study a book together. Maybe some of you ladies, as you walk out this morning with this new booklet in hand, could get together and go through it together and encourage one another. Have some people from the church you don't know well over for a meal and get to know them better. Get to know these precious people that you are in the same spiritual house with. Invest in the things God invests in. What does He invest in? He invests in His living stones in Christ the chief cornerstone. How are you actively fighting fleshly desires that war against your soul? Individually, corporately. Whether it's 
greed, covetousness, sexual sin, idolatry, laziness, apathy, or something as acceptable to us as unrighteous anger? Are you seeking to abstain from those fleshly, natural desires? Seek God's help through the Holy Spirit. Call out to Him. He he is the chief cornerstone. He's what all of this hinges on. Go to Him. He provides power and wisdom to those who ask. On this Mother's Day, how can you as mothers and fathers encourage your kids to view the world through the lens of a pilgrim or sojourner? This world is not their home. They're just passing through. How can you encourage them to view the world through that lens? How can you help them see the importance of the spiritual building, the church, that you as a living stone are being built into? How are we as a church helping train and prepare the next generation of living stones How are we preparing them to live as a holy priesthood before God? Whether you have kids or grandkids, this is is an opportunity that we have. So let the words of Hebrews 10.24-25 take root in our hearts. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. The return of Christ could come at any time. And so we must be busy assembling together as God's spiritual house. May God help us as living stones to relish in being His chosen house and special people. And may we embrace being on mission, working towards our God-given chosen purpose. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word that You have written to us. Thank You for Your Son, Jesus Christ, who has enabled us to be called Your sons and daughters, to be adopted into Your family. May You help us by Your grace, Father to see how important you view your spiritual building, your holy priesthood, this church, your own special people. May we treasure the things that you treasure. May we treasure and invest in the things that you treasure and invest in. We pray this in your name. Amen.